uh, invite you to join me as we pray before reading our text for this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit, who inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words, would also help us to understand it rightly. And so we pray that your blessing would be upon the reading and the conscionable hearing of your word, and then the proclamation of that same word. May it be true and faithful to your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So here are the words from Romans 2, verses 17 to 29, our text for this morning. Typically a little larger text than we usually preach on, but uh, you may or may not have noticed that I try to preach on a particular thought, a complete unit, and so that's why we break up the passages as we do. So hear, the, hear what the Apostle Paul has to say uh, to the church at Rome, uh, but in this particular chapter, uh, an imagined conversation partner among his own people, that is, the ethnically his people, the Jews. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and to prove what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law that the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, but by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing and understanding of his word this morning. Beloved, back in the heady early days of the Soviet Union, I would say in the 20s and 30s, uh, the Soviet government would often entertain international intellectuals uh, like the American educator John Dewey, who wrote a fair bit about his visit to the Soviet Union. And the government, the Soviet government, would take these internationally renowned guests uh, and give them a tour and show them how well Soviet society was functioning. These visiting guests would be impressed with the lifestyle of Soviet citizens in the communities where they lived and worked. Uh, 
these so-called Potemkin villages, you may have heard that expression, Potemkin village, were quite stunning. So stunning that one famous individual returned home to the United States and said that we have seen the future and it is the Soviet Union. The problem with these villages was that the Soviets, uh, that the Soviets showed off was that they, they were sham villages, factories, and stores. These towns had the outward appearance of prosperity, but on the backsides and insides of these towns, it was all empty scaffolding. Potemkin villages were like the studio set for a TV Western, all show and no substance. Paul, in our passage for this morning, continues his critique of hypocritical religiosity. Paul, in other words, has no room for Potemkin village Christians. No room. So I want to look at this passage under the following three headings. You are instructed from the law, verses 17 to 20. You dishonored God, verses 21 to 24. And then finally, a Jew is one inwardly, verses 25 to 29. And so let's look at our first point. You are instructed from the law. Paul continues his frontal assault on his hypocritical fellow countrymen. Earlier, Paul had pointed out that mere possession of the law was insufficient for salvation. One must also obey the law and do that personally, perpetually, and perfectly. Yes, the three Ps that we learned about last week. But we cannot obey the law if we don't know it. Neither Paul nor our Lord ever suggested that the key to spiritual growth and maturity was ignorance or unfamiliarity with the scriptures. Perish the thought, or as the King James would put it, God forbid. As with his Lord, the Apostle Paul does not criticize his fellow Jews for desiring to know the scriptures. That wasn't their problem. Their problem was both misunderstanding and misapplying the Bible. The Jews of Paul's day failed to understand that the Old Testament was given by God over time, and it spoke of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And therefore, because they misunderstood that significant point, then they very often misapplied the Bible in very legalistic ways. Uh, you may have heard, parenthetically, that the Pharisees uh, came up with 613 laws to protect God's law. In other words, this man-made law was a hedge of protection, You've, to use an expression that we hear in Christian circles. They, this man-made law was a hedge of protection, supposedly, around God's law. So if you broke the, the man's law, you yet hadn't yet, theoretically, broken God's law. So uh, that's at least one group, one sect in Judaism and how they understood God's word. The Sadducees, on the other hand, you may remember, didn't believe in, in the afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. And they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the Torah. Uh, and so they had their own problems as well. So you see, Jesus didn't criticize the Pharisees because they studied the Bible too much. Jesus noted to the Pharisees that they searched the scriptures because in them 
they thought they would find life. That attitude was correct. They were not being criticized because they loved God's word. They were criticized because of how they understood the word to be read and obeyed. The problem was that the Pharisees didn't rightly understand and apply the word of God. Paul echoes his Lord in both recognizing the benefits to the Jews because they were the old covenant people of God, but he also pointed out the drawbacks to failing to properly handle and apply the scriptures. It is good and right to rely on the law as a guide to how we should live as Christians, but not as a means by which we get saved or are found acceptable in the sight of a holy God. You understand that. It is good and right to rely on the law as a guide to how we should live. It's good and right to boast in the holy, righteous, gracious, good, and merciful God. God is the source of all good things and any good in us. We ought not to boast in ourselves or in any of our achievements. We shouldn't even boast about what the Lord is doing in us. I'm not saying deny that he's at work in us and sanctifying us and causing us to grow. But remember in Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector, that both of them are in the temple the tax collector knows he's a wicked, sinful creature. We might even say critter. And he's thumping his chest because he knows he can't even look up. He cannot even look at God because he knows he's a sinner. The Pharisee, on the other hand, uh, is in the, in the temple saying, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like that other man, especially that guy over in the corner, uh, the tax collector. In other words, he was thankful that God had set him apart, that God had worked in him. And Jesus said only one man went away justified. That was the tax collector and not the Pharisee. It is good and right to know God's will and to prove what is excellent and to be instructed by the law. Now we can use that, the word law in the narrow sense to refer to the Ten Commandments, or in a slightly broader sense, to refer to all of the Mosaic Covenant, or more broadly, to refer to the Old Testament as a whole, or we might even use the word law in the sense of the Bible as a whole. And in, 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 in the sense that I'm using it here, it can be flexible. Now, Paul, is a, when he's talking about the law, he's thinking specifically about uh, the Mosaic Covenant, not the Ten Commandments as such, but the Mosaic Covenant, the, the, the larger body of legal direction that God gave through the hands of Moses. So it is good and right to know God's will and approve what is excellent and to be instructed by the law. But we misunderstand the law and we misapply it if we fail to recognize that the law points forward to and finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. The Westminster Divines will talk about the law being a foreshadowing the coming of Christ in types and shadows and ceremonies. 
It is good and right to realize in the law we find the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now you understand that I'm going back and forth between Paul's situation and ours. And I'm sliding back and forth on purpose. I'm not unaware of what I'm doing here. Christians are not called to be relativists or postmodernists in the sense of reading everything suspiciously or not recognizing the word of God to be the word of God. So Paul is not criticizing his fellow kinsmen for their love of the word of God. He's not criticizing them because they possess it. So saying that the mere possession of the law is not sufficient to save you is not the same thing as saying it's not necessary. Okay, something can be necessary without being totally sufficient. But you see, what Paul is getting at is the, hypo the hypocrisy of his countrymen. So he, so he asks these, these kinds of questions after he, he talks about being instructors and, and teachers and, and uh, leaders. He asks, but are we guides? Are we guides to the blind? Are we lights to those in darkness? Are we instructors of the foolish? Are we teachers of children? Know well that not one of these roles is necessarily wrong in itself. There is nothing wrong with being a guide, a light, an instructor, or a teacher. The Jews of Paul's day were not wrong because they realized all, that all the blessings they enjoyed as God's people brought with them certain responsibilities to one another and to the Gentile world. Paul isn't criticizing them for that. The error of Paul's kinsmen was in thinking that being ethnically Jewish or being among the old covenant people of God by itself guaranteed their salvation or was an adequate basis for thinking more highly of themselves than they ought. We can sometimes forget that if we serve in these roles as a teacher, as a guide, as light, that it is by God's mercy and grace, not because of our achievement. Beloved, what do we have that we have not been given by God? At the end of the day, it is our Lord and Master Jesus Christ who perfectly fills these roles of light and guide, instructor and teacher. He is the perfect guide, the perfect light, the perfect instructor, and the perfect teacher. After all, one of his three offices is prophet, priest, and king. These are not, uh, and we share in these roles by grace, by faith. These are not roles that we can boast about as if we worked our way up from the bottom of the barrel by our own brute strength and brilliance. We have experienced ourselves the power of regeneration and justification, and so it is out of our union and communion with the living Christ that we serve as guides, lights, instructors, and teachers. Do you realize that knowledge of Scripture and theology is meant to lead you into a deeper fellowship with our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Years ago in the Middle Ages and up until the time of the Puritans, it was understood that theology was the study of living rightly to God. And Jonathan Edwards added, through Christ. That was the purpose of theology. So Paul does not criticize the, his fellow countrymen for, for possessing the law and understanding the benefits and the obligations that come with that. He criticizes them because they don't obey it and they misunderstand it. And he goes on in the next section, he says that they, you dishonor God. Paul asks his fellow Israelites, and in asking them, he's asking us in an analogous way. He asks his fellow Israelites whether as teachers and guides, they stand under the word, or do they think that they stand above it? Did Paul's kinsmen seek to understand and be ruled by the word of God, or did they seek to control and domesticate it and fail to follow it. Beloved, standing over the word manifests a spiritual problem and an attitude problem. Now, it's understandable when unbelievers and critical scholars of all stripes are guilty of this attitude, this sinful error way of thinking, because they think they are superior to the scriptures, because they do not recognize them to be the word of God, it's understandable that unbelievers would behave that way, but this attitude can be a problem for professing believers too, just as it was in Paul's day among his own people. This sinful attitude and spiritual condition arises because we forget that we are called by our Lord to study the scriptures, allowing them to mold us and challenge us as God's word will do. The Bible will also fortify us. It will build us up. It will strengthen us, too. It will comfort and encourage us. But the scriptures will humble us if we read them with all due appreciation and understanding and desire to obey our Lord. If we appreciate the sinfulness of our sin and the graciousness of God's saving and sanctifying grace... Our study of God's word will work its way in us because in the scriptures, God the Holy Spirit speaks to us. It's okay to say that the Holy Spirit speaks to us as long as we understand that he does that in the, and through the scriptures. The, the time of the Holy Spirit speaking outside of the word of God has ceased. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us of Christ and our fellowship with him, and about our loving Heavenly Father. The Bible, at one and the same time, opens our hearts and minds to amazing vistas of God's character and saving purposes, his holiness and justice, his love and patience and his power and his might. The Bible makes it clear that Christians are to study the word so that we may draw upon its bottomless reservoirs of spiritual sustenance. If we are to be teachers of one another and of the unbelieving world, then we need to have slaked our spiritual thirst at the well of Scripture. If we serve as teachers and guides, we need to first be under God's word and subject to it. 
God is Lord over his word. We are not. We are servants of the word. One implication of serving the word is that we are called to put into practice what it teaches and obey it because it is God's speech to us. It tells us what we ought to think about God and how we ought to behave. Those are the two things that the Bible is concerned with. If you think about it, that's another way of saying love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. Jesus said those are the two great commandments. The first and the second was like unto it. Upon all these things hangs the law and the prophets. Paul now asks a serious question, a series of serious questions to get at the root of the problem which he saw among his kinsmen uh, and that he saw in himself prior to his meeting the Lord on the road to Damascus. He asks, you who teach, do you teach yourselves? Beloved, when I preach, I need to preach my sermons to myself before I can preach them to you. And I literally do that. I don't assume that I'm the master over the sermon. The sermon rightly done is the master over me because it is an exposition of God's word. You who preach against stealing, Paul asks, do you steal? Do we steal money, time, and resources? Do we speak against adultery while committing it in our minds? Jesus pointed out that committing adult mental adultery is real adultery all the same. You who speak against idolatry, do you hang around temples to rob them? Now that's an interesting question. Because we might have expected Paul to say, do you commit idolatry? But he says, you, do you rob temples? Scholars are divided and admittedly unsure as to what Paul means when he asks this question. Surely we can say this, if we rob the true God's temple, of course, thinking of the temple in Jerusalem or God's church today, if we rob the true God's temple, we show him no love or honor, and we show him contempt. So that's pretty obvious. If we rob an idolatrous temple, the theft isn't acceptable because we are robbing an idolatrous temple. It's still breaking God's law. Do you come ever so close to idolatry? Do you entertain how much trouble you can get away with? And remember, as I told the folks in Sunday school, that idolatry can be both physical, a building of a statue, uh, the, being uh, told to bow down or offer incense to your political leader, and it can be mental. Things that we love, that take the place of God, become idols of the heart. You who boast in the law, Paul asks, do you realize that you dishonor God with your breaking of the law? You drag God's name through the mud with your sinfulness. Now Paul there cites the prophet Isaiah, 
Whether we are thinking about the Israelites in Exodus 32, which we read earlier this morning, uh, who forge a golden calf and call it Yahweh, you see what they did? They forged the golden calf and said that that was Jehovah. It's a messed up mind to do that. I mean, it's one thing if you build a, a golden calf and give it some other name, but to say that this is the true God who brought you up out of Egypt. It's terrible. And then later, Israelites who stained the floors of God's temple with idolatrous feet and hands and tongues. Remember the opening chapter of Isaiah, where God says, who asked you to, to, to trample my courts? Who asked you to come in here and do that? You see, he knew what they were doing outside the temple. It's the same problem that Paul is dealing with here. These hypocritical forms of piety, or what is really impiety, bring dishonor on God's name among the heathen. And you know what I'm talking about. Whenever a pastor or a minister falls, or a well-known Christian commits some gross sin, it brings uh, God's name into dishonor because the heathen then have what they think is a reason to blaspheme God. Can you see the analogy between an Israelite and a member of the Christian church today, beloved? It was possible to be a member of the old covenant people of God without being a true believer. And it is the case that one can be a member of an Orthodox Christian church and not experience personal salvation. I grew up in a pastor's home, but I, it, it wasn't until I was 18 that I trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I said, I went through all the motions, went to church, went to Sunday school, went to the teen Bible study, worked at the summer camp that the church promoted. I did all those things, but at the time I was not a Christian. It is possible to follow all the rules and fool the church, but we will not mock God. We can be a part of the church without being of the church. Now, I am not suggesting that a true saint can't sin and sin grievously because he can. Think of King David and the Apostle Peter, two examples of men who were believers at the time they committed their sins. Adultery and murder in David's case, one instance, and then with Peter, the denial of knowing the Lord, it doesn't justify their behavior. It doesn't justify their sin. It's simply pointing out that believers can and do sin. But the golden calf incident is evidence of a failure to be the people of God in anything more than name only. Properly understood, the golden calf incident of Exodus 32 was a breaking of the first four commandments but especially the third regarding taking the name of the Lord in vain. Fashioning a golden calf and calling it Yahweh is the taking of the Lord's name in vain. There is a little bit of humor in the, the rest of the account as Aaron explains to Moses how the golden calf appeared. Tossed in the gold and out popped this golden calf. Now, there is forgiveness, beloved. Let's remember that the remedy for sin, in all instances, 
is to run to God, to flee to him, to, to grab onto the hem of Christ's garment, confessing our sin and repenting and then endeavoring to follow after new obedience. All that, that flows from fleeing to Christ. As I've told people in the past, whether you're a sinner coming to faith in Christ or you're a saint seeking strength and, and building up or forgiveness for sins committed, the same answer to the problem is flee to Christ. Don't dishonor God. Don't drag his name through the mud with the unbelieving world. But if you find yourself in that situation, don't delay. Beloved, run to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. There is an answer to that horrific problem called sin. And sometimes as believers, we find ourselves in that situation. There is an answer to that. It doesn't mean that life will be easy in this world after repentance. If you get pregnant out of wedlock and you realize the sin you have committed and you repent and you are restored, you're still pregnant. So understand that there are still consequences in this world that you may have to deal with even though you are forgiven and restored. Do you play at the game of church as if it were a spectator sport? Have you dishonored God's name? And that brings us to our third and final point. Paul reminds his fellow Jews that genuine Jewishness or real godliness consists in possessing the spiritual reality which the signs that they magnify point to. Circumcision being the one issue in this instance that is the flash point. Circumcision of the flesh points to the inward reality of the circumcision of the heart. That's already in the Old Testament. We'll go to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. So, the circumcision of the flesh, which was commanded of all males in Israel beginning with, Mo with Abraham, not with Moses. That command was meant to point, that outward sign was meant to point to an inward spiritual reality. This is so true that Paul raises a hypothetical. It is so true that if an uncircumcised Gentile were to keep the law, which we know never happened, but it's, a hypothet it's hypothetically true. If an uncircumcised Gentile were to keep the law, he would be viewed by God as being circumcised. Being physically circumcised and hearing the law is no guarantee of spiritual cleanliness. Jews were to be both physically and spiritually circumcised. It's just like being baptized. By now you should have picked up on the fact that Paul's principle of the inwardness of Jewishness or spirituality or real godliness carries forward into the New Testament. In other words, when he tells 
his fellow countrymen that to be really Jewish is to be spiritually circumcised. That's not a mere historically interesting factoid, but has no bearing upon us. The principle carries forward. It doesn't disappear with the New Testament age. Look at Colossians 2, verses 11 through 13. And you'll see the the bringing together of circumcision and baptism. They, they, They are the two signs, one of the Old Covenant, one of the New Covenant, pointing to the same spiritual reality. Regeneration. Being born again. To be baptized with water does not guarantee that one is united to Christ and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, we are called to undergo baptism and we are called to participate as believers in the Lord's Supper. Eating bread and drinking wine or grape juice by itself only nourishes the body. God is concerned with both outward obedience to his word and with the inward motivation of the heart. And that's why we stress, as we will, as we do, the next few weeks preparing for the Lord's Supper, which is on the 19th, by the way, when we partake of the bread and the wine, it benefits us if we do it by faith. It only benefits us if we do it by faith. Of course, none of us lives the Christian life perfectly with only pure motives. That is why we always need the Lord with whom we are inseparably joined. But we are called to endeavor after new obedience, Christ having provided the perfect obedience on our behalf. Christ has satisfied the law, the personal, perpetual, and perfect part. Christ is satisfied. But we are nevertheless still called to endeavor after new obedience. What matters to God is that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ by faith and cleanses us from our sin and also unites us to his church. Are you a Christian only outwardly, or are you a Christian both outwardly and inwardly? That is Paul's question. Paul reminds us in conclusion that possession of God's word and the outward benefits of membership in Christ's church does not guarantee that we have drunk at the fountain of Christ's grace. We are called to be Christians inwardly and outwardly. Don't don't make the mistake of thinking God's not concerned with our outward actions. He is. But he is also concerned with the heart motivations. Let's not play at the game of Christianity. Let's be real Christians. Let's not be Potemkin village Christians. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for your word, even when it is a challenge to us, even when it searches our hearts, even to the marrow of our bones. We pray your blessing upon our thinking afterward this afternoon of what we've heard. 
pray that it has been faithful to your word and to Paul's uh, writing. We pray that you would use the word to grow us as your people, to grow us up into the full measure of the, full, of the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.